Hier komen wij in vreemd. Hello, my name's Rose Ward. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. This is a very special edition where we have a fellow podcaster and um, friend of mine, <laughs> Tom Ballard, who's come to talk to me and um, my producer, technical producer of the show and um, co-host Liam Ward mm-hmm. and Sarah Garnham, Hi. who's just dropped by, coincidentally, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, just likes being on the podcast as much me. as possible. Yeah, making me feel welcome. <laughs> So, Tom, you have your own podcast. I do. Like I'm a six-year-old. Yep. yep. You said that confidently. <laughs> no, it's I your favourite podcast. I, I listen to it all, all the time, especially the Lyle Shelton one. I listen yeah. to yeah, it before I go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to um, get, change my nightmares up from being late for a plane. The mood. That's a two-part of that one, so enjoy. Yeah. Mm. I haven't um, listened to that one. Well, there's a, there's a big, actually, back catalogue of your Podcast. How many episodes have you done? There's a lot. We're up. Where you just released 168, I believe. Mm. Over a couple of years, there's been a few periods of uh, of it not existing at all. But um, yes, lovely people such as yourself, Roz, and less lovely people like Lyle Shelton. And <laughs> thank you for that. Clarifies <laughs> the two big ones. Yeah. What two was greats. the thinking behind that? Did you just run out of left wing people to talk? To? <laughs> No, I mean, you know, there is a genuine idea or a mission or a dream behind the podcast is to try and, you know, sit down with people in some level of good faith and try and talk to them about their politics and try and understand where they're coming from. I try my best to um, take issue with them where I can (laughs) and sometimes I'm okay at that. Sometimes I probably drop the ball a little bit. But um, I I do find that in a podcast context, uh, sitting down with someone talking about politics is much more illuminating anyway rather than a live interview where people are trying to mm. catch each other out or anything like that. You can genuinely lay out your case and, you know, yeah. rephrase what you think and sort of explain those kind of things. Yeah. Mm. But I'm certainly I've certainly let go of the idea that we can um we can all just get along if yeah. we sit down and, <laughs> and understand where everyone's coming from. Because sometimes people are coming from horrible places and they yeah. need to be shut down and minimized <laughs> yeah. and marginalized. Yeah. And lots of conversations in the real world and in brawls as well. So yeah, yeah. That's true. Well, maybe very that's true. your experience, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so you're pretty well known uh, as being sort of left wing now. And your time at the ABC with the Tonightly show mm. sort of, it seemed to me that it became progressively um, more and more radical and more and more left wing politically, the way I was seeing it. How did that go in your experience? Like, what was going on for you and you, the way you were thinking about the world as you were doing? Did it have anything to do with being on TV or was it people you were talking to, things you were reading? I'd say, you know, zooming out a little bit, like, you know, I've been politically engaged for, for quite a while. A lot of that comes from my parents who are both in Amnesty International, um, both involved in the union, both uh, worked in the public sector in human services. Um, and so politics was just sort of there and kicking around for a long time and I was interested in it and, and, and you know, um, liked being on the leftish side of things, I guess. Mm. And but I now realise I was a um, lily livered liberal <laughs> um, who loved the West Wing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then you know, twenty sixteen happens, and you go, Jesus, the good Lord, mm. fucking hell! What, can we swear? Can we yeah, swear. Of course. So now you like House of Cards. <laughs> Tear it all down. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. Are they good socialist TV shows? That's a conversation. Yeah, House for of Cards is good. It's oh, just it's utterly so cynical. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, awesome. it's mm. absolutely accurate. They're all crooks. Mm. So, yeah, so 2016, I guess, will be the starting of my, my general move towards an interest in socialist politics and moving further to the left. And then by the time tonight comes around, which is the end of 2017, that's, yes, certainly the things I'm reading to, uh, I would I would point to the Chapo Trap House as a podcast as a massive influence um, and many other leftist podcasts besides. And all that is kind of, um, yeah, clarifying my thinking and you realise just how bad Hillary Clinton <laughs> was. <laughs> yeah. Even though I used to think she was the most qualified candidate ever. <laughs> um, and you just start asking these questions. Then tonight was made up of a lot of young um Young comedians, a lot of young comedians are pretty left wing, and um, a bunch of them were uh, maybe rad libs, might you know meet the definition of rad libs, and others were genuine Marxists and um, had a material analysis and stuff. And we wanted to try, we realized making that show that we wanted to be different to say the Daily Show, um, which was a very, um, I guess you might say, smug kind of had a certain disposition towards satire, you know, yeah. comedy and satire, which just sort of said, oh, gosh, they're all the, as bad as each other or, um, uh, you know, if only we get the bad people out of power and mm. everything will work mm. out okay. Or as just a, scoring intellectual points. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. And and thinking and, and, and thinking that uh, your comedy was making a, a serious difference mm. <laughs> in political power, which I think betrays a lack of understanding of how power works. Mm. And so we we tried we tried as much as we could, and I think certainly progressive over the course of the show to try and do more and more things that took aim at um, wealth and power, regardless mm. of the you know partisan colour that was slapped on that. And the, more that going power. at it, kind of like with a hammer than a feather. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I think is what good. Like you know, on, on TV, there's a lot of like nuance and subtlety and whatever like and i think sometimes you know comedy can just be like mm. let's just make a sign and hold it next to someone and just be like this person is this person a sucks. piece of shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly the abc you know and i mean i think that there are you know a program like say the weekly is is is, is slightly more centrist you know i've talked to yeah. charlie pickering he's, yeah, he's yeah. a big elizabeth warren fan and you know mm. is, is certainly not calling for the end of capitalism that really fits actually <laughs> <laughs> And Kelly's a nice friend of mine. Yeah, I think he's a very good comedian. But, you know, in terms of if I think if you really want to key into what's happening in the moment and, and represent the political inclinations and concerns of my generation of millennials, it's it's us looking around at the way the world is organised and society is organised and saying this is, this is fucking yeah. bad shit. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm. And were there some things on that show that you genuinely got in trouble for around? I know there was a thing with a liberal um, campaign... Core flute or something was it a graffiti thing, and then the liberals complained to the ABC. We, I think you called someone something. Yes, there was a sketch about renaming the seat of Batman, um, uh, and the the comedic solution that um, Greg um, uh, suggested. Greg Larson, my my co uh, co host, my colleague, was to rename it. Batman is a c word. Mm. Can't yeah. can we go that? Bleep <laughs> yeah. that if you like. What whatever you. Anyway, that was the premise of the sketch, and uh, and there was a liberal candidate, conservative candidate, running that election, and we said, oh, he didn't have the word Batman on his core flute, so we'll just re- rename that. Um, this man is a is a cunt, <laughs> and hilarity ensued. Anyway, it's fine. You watch yeah. the sketch; it all it's all explained, and then Greg drops the premise, the the uh, the facade, and sort of talks about how we tried to get an interview with this guy, and he said no, and so this was a very petty way of us responding to that. Mm. He was Australian conservative. Corbyn Arnie's Australian right. Conservative Party, rather. 
um, and that the Minister for Communications complained. It went to the Australian Communications and Media Authority, which released a 33-page report about the incident. Wow. wow. Which contained they did more research than you did. They're way more. <laughs> Well-paid researchers, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, there was an ideolo- yeah, it's a clearly an ideological attack. The ABC is in a very um, dodgy, uh, precarious position at the moment with funding and such. Mm. Um, and, of course, yeah, the right-wing media and Murdoch media and members of the Liberal Party uh, hated us. Which, you know, they're in power and that's and kind thought, of the job oh, of a comedy doing a good show. job, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I mean, no, they're not going to be listening to this, so we can go for our lives. They can't shut down Red Flag Radio. Uh, Andrew no. Bolt doesn't seem to have, have noticed it yet. <laughs> no. Um, There'll be an Australian article in like four years about this. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> They'll have Googled my name again. Oh, let's just Google Roswell and see what happens. Oh, there's a podcast. Um <laughs> Uh, this week, Andrew Bolt did call me ubiquitous, though, which I was quite proud That's of. That's really flattering, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said, ubiquitous like academic. Yeah. I'm like, wow, <laughs> ubiquitous is nice. Oh, and yeah. I'm not really an academic, <laughs> but sure, I'll take it. Thank you very much. You're around. <laughs> so let's talk about what we talk about on this show, which is revolutionary socialism. So Red Flag Radio is sort of specifically dedicated to kind of trying to put a revolutionary socialist perspective on a whole bunch of things, historical things, struggles that are happening now, theoretical questions and so on. And so your um, exploration of socialism, you will have come across that there's sort of different forms of socialism and revolutionary socialism is, um, I guess, the furthest left. A lot of people see it on the spectrum like that. The furthest left variety of socialism there is. and people have questions about it. So what I asked you to do coming on this show is to um, have this opportunity to ask us some of your questions about what it actually means to be a revolutionary. Because I reckon the, the conversations that we've had just personally and mm. then on when I came on your podcast, it does seem to me that you have genuine questions about that. We might as well have a genuine discussion mm. about it. We'll try and answer some of them. And I'm sure your questions would be very similar to a bunch of other listeners that we have to the podcast who are thinking about these things. Because it's definitely not something that you just come across and go, oh, yeah, that all seems good. I'll, I'll just join this organisation. Like, no one really does that. But No, and, yeah. and I guess that the, the moments, the political moments around the world that are attracting my attention or getting me excited are those surrounding, say, Bernie Sanders, which is who identifies as a democratic socialist. Um, I guess it was Jeremy Corbyn, but that's, uh, yep, that's been an issue, but real shame there. Um, and I guess, yes, maybe it's it's the the, the version of uh, conservatism or cautiousness within me um, that is a bit more attracted to those side of things, um, or that they're the kind of folks that I read or are interested in and um, have been to a bunch of socialist alternative uh, uh, events um, and forums, Marxism conference. Yeah. Um, I endorsed the Victorian Socialists um, electoral campaign in the Victorian election, um, which I understand is an electoral project, but it's obviously, you know, comes out of a um, bunch of revolutionary um, organisations and projects. So, yeah, I did the homework. <laughs> Great. Our well, I thought I thought just the word revolution would be a good starting point. I mean, what what do you mean or what do you think or feel associated with the word revolution and how do you see it playing out politically in the real world? Big question. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think of vacuum cleaners and... Um, <laughs> Actually, this is a true story. It's maybe a funny story for some people that you won't know about my life history. 
When I had finished my sabbatical as Equal Opportunities Officer at Reading University in the Student Union, when I was part of the broad left, not the revolutionary left, I thought I should go and get a job. And I looked at some graduate training programs, and one of them was with Dyson, um, which is outside Reading. And I went to the corporate headquarters for my interview. And I really didn't want to do it, but I just was like a bit lost about what I was going to do with my life. And I went, um, I got through to the sort of um, group interviews, and then we had to do this thing in front of the group, which was to explain the revolutionary features of the latest (laughs) Dyson seven-cylinder machine. And they gave us one, and I I think I was the only one who'd never even thought about a vacuum cleaner. Other people had prepped for this. And so I was just improvising with this vacuum cleaner in front of this panel of people, and I literally got halfway through trying to take the no-bag thing out of it and I was just like, okay, I just don't think this is really for me. And I just walked out of the whole thing. Ah, <laughs> good for you. Revolutionary yeah. vacuum cleaners. I decided a rebel that's definitely at least. Not yeah. Maybe not a revolutionary act quite, <laughs> but, yeah. but yes. This vacuum yeah, cleaner will seize the means of production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really sucked. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that was a long lead up <laughs> to a punchline. <laughs> Liam. Okay, what do you think about revolution? Uh, uh, well, you're right. It's a good question to start, actually, because there are so many... Uh, definitions of what a revolution is, you know, and even beyond vacuum cleaners and crap like that. Even when you talk about politics and history and social change, there are different types of revolutions. Um, and the revolutions that we're interested in and that we sort of stand for because we think they're the way to actually liberate humanity are what we call workers' revolutions. Um, this means that, I mean, it starts from the acknowledgement that we live in a class torn, you know, class divided society where there are two main classes, the capitalist class and the working class pitted against each other, um, you know, in a constant state of conflict because, and that conflict can't be reconciled, you know, because their interests are actually opposed. Well, the Labour Party tells me that it can and that we can all work together. <laughs> that's, that's question two. We'll get to that. <laughs> but in terms of what we mean by workers' revolution, then we say, well, okay, acknowledging, like, take it as given that this conflict is happening we want our side to win. Mm. We want workers to win. We want workers themselves to, on a mass scale, rise up and take their own future into their own hands and set about the process of liberating humanity. That kind of revolution is much bigger and much more profound than any of the other types of revolutions that we've seen through history. Right. Um, you know, and, and there are other revolutions that we also support. So, for example, you know, revolutions that overthrow some rotten government, you know, that still involve mass upheaval, they overthrow some rotten government, even if it's replaced by some kind of other version of, you know, a capitalist government, um, it's still probably a a supportable thing because it involves, you know, masses of people trying to change the future. Um, Most of those instances, I think, do shine a spotlight on, like in the negative, in a sense, they prove the case for why we need something more than just that, actually. You know, I'm thinking here about like South Korea a few years ago where the, you know, mass movement week after week after week, month after month that culminated in bringing down this dictatorial right-wing president, um, but hasn't really led to, you know, uh, leaps forward in people's sense of, you know, that they have some freedom and some control over their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, my my favourite sort of uh, just pithy summary of what a revolution is is from Trotsky, Um, when he said that revolutions are when the masses enter the stage of history, Mm. um, which I think is a really beautiful way of describing it um, because they're mass events. They're about 
ordinary people fighting to change the political and economic structures of society. And revolutions vary in terms of how much they do that, how much they're just about politically altering society or, you know, the whole foundations of it, including the economy as well. Mm. Um, And they vary in terms of which classes lead them. They vary in terms of how they begin. Um, But always they're about the masses saying that they no longer tolerate the way things are being run on a holistic level. And, you know, it's not just a movement around one specific demand, one specific campaign to change one little, you know, aspect of a constitution or aspect of society, but it's actually a demand and a process that's about people saying we will demand and fight for um, a whole um, change to the way society is organised. So I think... uh, Revolutions essentially are about people saying we want to exercise our democratic rights, like we want real democracy, we want to have a say over how society functions. Um, And so often we're just told that democracy is just about voting, Mm. which is it's been such a naturalised concept that you're all you get to do in terms of democracy and in a way what's seen as almost a synonym of democracy Mm. is vote once Mm. every four years which is a process that takes about 30 seconds. Um, And yet so many people, if you just ask them, view democracy as something fundamental to how, you know, a right that they should be entitled to in society, something that they treasure that is precious and so on. Yet we also sort of simultaneously tolerate only being given 30 seconds every four years. Mm. Um, You know, if you compare that to sex, for example, Um, (laughs) If people were told sex is something you enjoy, you treasure, is kind of fundamental to the way humans engage with each other, but you're only allowed to do it once every four years for 30 seconds. That's my life. That's that's very relatable. Thank you. That's an (laughs) unhappy state of affairs, you know. Um, And Pauline Hanson's involved. (laughs) So revolutions are about saying we want more democracy. We want it now. We actually want meaningful um, say over our society. We want to get laid. (laughs) <laughs> and the and the phrase the other yeah. phrase that I think I mean we use a lot as revolutionary socialists but it can come across as a bit glib sometimes or people hear it that way which is the self emancipation of the working class and if you break down the words in that self is important like it's not someone else doing it for you mm. we're all part of it so each and every one of us selves is involved in that emancipation again people say oh whatever freedom this freedom that but mm. like actual full emancipation from the entire way that the capitalist system works, from exploitation and oppression on every level, every element of oppression that you could even think about under capitalism. We want to get rid of all of that mm. and working class because that's the only force in society that has the power to do that mm. and to achieve it and to then create a new kind of society um, through that process of full democracy like Sarah's talking about. So the process of revolution itself is not just because – you need it to overthrow the capitalist state, which is another thing we might talk about, but it's because that process in and of itself and the people doing it and because we're doing it ourselves and we're doing it collectively sets you up to be able to then organise things completely differently, mm. which is sort of the thing that Marx sort of came across and said, oh, it is possible with what we have in capitalism to transform that into something humane. The way of the revolution, as Damien Marx. 
Bernie Sanders talks about a political revolution, mm. and I'm interested in your thoughts on whether you find that a misleading term or why that falls short of what, what you're looking after or whether you can see something, an electoral campaign like akin to something that Bernie Sanders is doing in um, coordination with a strong trade union movement or you know lots of other working class power could could seriously move us towards that better world. What do you think of that? Well, um, if they don't fuck him over with these goddamn results, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know we're still waiting. <laughs> shadow, the shadow, the app. shadow. Apps. Maybe the shadow we just app. have Come to get on. behind Buttigieg's um, political revolution. Now. <laughs> 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 Bloomberg, the, he can um, lead us. The use of this phrase, I guess that's where I'm going to start. The use of this phrase, "political revolution" by Sanders, speaks to like that's an acknowledgement that there is a sense amongst you know, masses of the population. And according to all the kind of polls and demographics, we're talking about young people who are pissed off. You described like your own generation, the millennials, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think there is this certainly a chunk of people in the U S and, and around the world who are, who have well-earned and legitimate grievances against the entire political establishment. They know that these people have ruled for the rich. They know that these people have done nothing uh, to stop climate change. They know, you know, that the crimes are many and they're obvious and people are aware, aware of them. And so, there's a sense that we need radical change. We need something, you know? And so that's why I think this phrase revolution comes in. But when you think about everything we've just described as the sort of revolution we think is necessary, mm. um, you know, just, just putting someone in a position of running for the president of the world's biggest imperial power is not, you know, that's, that's something else entirely, especially when that person is not running as someone who says, that the problem here is capitalism. The problem here is that we live in a system that is fundamentally exploitative and cannot be fixed and needs to be overthrown. He's not doing that. He's running as a representative of the Democrats. You know, he's running as the person who would be the next Democratic president. In that role, is he going to be able to say, for example, from this day forward, it is now illegal in the United States of America to exploit people? You know, because what that means is profit is now illegal. You know, he's not going to do that. You can't do these things. You can't just put someone in a legislate for these things. And that's the starting, that's the starting point. You know, there's problems with the whole kind of attitude. And that's just in a practical way. You know, more fundamentally, the, the point that Ros was just making earlier about um, the revolutionary process when it's, you know, undertaken by masses of people changes them, you know, changes the way we think about ourselves and puts us in, you know, reshapes us, remolds us and makes us kind of the, the sort of people who actually can run the world ourselves again uh you know a, a, an electoral campaign is not that you know it's not that at all it's it's about this savior from on high who is going to supposedly fix things for us but he says not me us isn't that good oh well yeah yeah well <laughs> but how much how much does the us come into it you know because i think yeah that's a that's another part of the critique i guess that revolutionary socialists make that on the one hand there's the stuff that liam talked about which is that um, which goes to, well, what's your analysis of how capitalism works, which I'm sure you would agree with, that it's actually impossible in this system for one person to completely change the whole economic system and political system um, just because they become the president. Um, that doesn't actually overcome all of the bureaucrats, um, all of the bosses and the private property they own, all of the military generals, you know, all of the ammunition and wings of the capitalist state and capitalist power are not just overcome by um, one person in one office. But then um, there's also, you know, his whole political track record, which um, 
even if it was possible for one person to overcome capitalism through the stroke of a pan or whatever in the White House, um, he has an over 90% voting record um, with the Democratic Party. Mm. Um, and this is a party, like I would argue, actually the foremost party of capitalism in the world. Mm. Um, but, you know, you could say second to the Republicans, I'll give you that, you know. But basically <laughs> a... Sort of take turns <laughs> over the history of America. Yeah, um, and, you know, the Democrats are the party that of slavery and many crimes thereafter. So, uh, yeah, they're a huge corporate um, party that has promoted successfully... Um, an empire that has killed millions of people over its time, exploited millions of workers. Um, and Bernie Sanders agrees with that party over 90% of the time. I don't think that's, you know, a very uh, good argument for this guy can actually point us in the direction of socialism. But leaving that all to one side, I think the other argument made by left-wing people that's, you know, got um, some merit is that it's the campaign itself that can help to like stimulate struggle and start to get um, the ball rolling again in terms of building a socialist tendency in society, that kind of thing. I think that to a certain extent that can be true, like the guy popularised the word socialism to an extent or whatever. Um, but I think the biggest critique I have of the left investing so much energy into Bernie Sanders is that it's been over five years of just so, so, so many efforts mm. of activists all across the United States being sucked into a campaign that is ostensibly aiming to just, you know, give some people that 30 seconds of democracy, which won't fundamentally actually reshape society. Um, and time and time again, we've seen activist energy poured into Democratic Party election campaigns um, and it's not the case that that just then organically flows over into us being um, feeling more empowered to actually then build their own campaigns on the ground. Um, so I don't think it's the case, for example, following the defeat of Corbyn in the UK, that there are now 500,000, you know, ex-Labor Party members or still current Labor Party members who were rooting for Corbyn who have said, OK, now we'll just um, use all of our energies in the trade union struggle or to build a radical student movement or something like that. These things don't just transfer no. um, because actually people have been politically convinced to hope in the electoral process, um, which I think is a hope in vain. Um, and then they can become very demoralised when that doesn't actually deliver. So, um, you know, it's absolutely possible for left-wing people to, you know, chuck a vote to Sanders or support him. I'm sure like most left-wing people in the US will do that. But to actually invest energy and think this is the way forward to build some sort of socialist current, I don't think there's any historical evidence or evidence over just the last five years in the United States particularly that it's, um, you know, it's it's the main way to do that. So, Because um, it's also that thing of what you do trains the way you think. I mean, that's a very Marxist concept, sort of your being determines your consciousness. So if you spend a lot of time, years and years, inside a party or like the Labour Party working on election campaigns, then it's very hard to switch away from that because all the Labour Party people now who are Corbynists were, are now going for their candidate in the leadership election. And then if they don't win, they'll probably still support whoever it is that does win to beat Boris in the next general election and every and Bernie himself and every single one of his supporters. And it was a notable thing on the CNN coverage yesterday that I was sadly watching of the <laughs> Iowa caucuses because it's such a bizarre thing that they were going around with the microphone and saying to people in the Bernie groups, 
if Bernie doesn't win, are there any of these candidates that you wouldn't back or would you back? Oh, no, absolutely, 100%. They said it's notable. Mm. Everyone in every one of these caucuses says we will back the Democrats, whoever it is. When it comes down to it, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is beating Trump. So my prediction is that they'll all end up, all of these young Mm. people who've been motivated by being angry at the world and, as Liam said at the beginning, wanting things to change in America because it's so fucked up, Mm. to then campaign for Pete or Biden or Warren or Mm. Bloomberg probably. Mm. And that to me is a tragedy and it's why it's worth arguing at this point, even though people say, oh, you're just being sectarian or, you know, you're just shitting on the Bernie thing and what if he won and wouldn't it be great? It's like, yeah, we're desperate for wins too, you know, but we can look to other examples of things in the world right now where people are winning in different ways and not looking to electoral politics mm. to do that. I reckon it's worth, like this whole discussion, is there's kind of two threads to it. Like all came from one question, but there's sort of two threads. I know. Don't is, expect short answers yeah. here. <laughs> Tom. I might pop off. You guys say fine. We'll call you when you're, when you're done. I'll listen to the podcast. Um, the reason I think there's two threads is that question about, uh, uh, you know, would it would the election of Bernie Sanders, a self-avowed democratic socialist, actually be a step towards socialism, a step towards human liberation yes. and ending capitalism? That's one question. The other question is, you know, a, a kind of even assuming that you don't think that's true, then the second question is, but can the left somehow get towards socialism through being involved in this campaign for him anyway? Yes. You know, and they are separate questions. I think the points that have come out of the discussion here are really, I guess, the, the two ways yeah. of responding to your question. <clears throat> that's interesting. I mean, I, I would take a little bit of issue with the idea that, that Bernie Sanders doesn't identify capitalism as a problem for a lot of social ills. I mean, again, explicitly democratic socialist saying we need to shut down the private healthcare insurance industry right now. He's not calling for an end to the economic system as a whole. And I know that's what we're all about right here in this room. <laughs> but, he's, but, but the way he phrases it is there are problems with capitalism. Right. Capitalism causes some problems. Okay. Right. As which is what uh, Elizabeth Warren says. There are problems with capitalism and there are some good things with capitalism. Bernie doesn't say there are some good things, but he says there are some. I guess problems. he'd say he's a democratic socialist, so problems. like you know, take take from that what you will. He's he's in favour of socialism, and I guess he's he would argue that, or the campaign would argue, they're being strategic about the kind of things that they identify, the things that the the most the thorniest issues in people's lives in America that capitalism manifests itself in. That is, I could get bankrupt because I get cancer. Zero in on that. Yeah. Win votes on that, and try and transform people's lives. I mean. I guess best case scenario, and there's a whole lot of reasons why this might not happen, but if he won the presidency and if Democrats win a whole bunch of houses in Congress and Senate, you know, it is not impossible to imagine that they could move America towards a medical for all, which would materially transform the lives of lots of people in the, in the United States, right? Which is a good, good thing. Mm-hmm. No. And I don't, I don't know, I don't want to go to these, like, the, the perfect be the enemy of the good bullshit, because like, that's used by the right wing of the Labour Party to yeah. say that we need to keep locking up refugees. But there is, I guess, I guess um, you know, Medicare for all in, in, a, in America or perhaps a Green New Deal in Australia would be so radically different to the way we arrange and organise things at the moment that, um, I mean, I do see that as a, as a kind of rev- a political revolution, a, a, a dramatic shift from where we are now to what, what could be. I mean, I just kind of think you got to do the maths in a way. Like, there's been 130 years of people trying to fight within the Democrats or the Democrats and Republicans in the US, um, the two major parties in many other countries that have that system as well, um, to fight for basic um, 
measures to ameliorate injustice and inequality. And only the smallest fraction of those have been achieved anywhere. Um, In the United States, hardly anything has been achieved. I mean, what a disgrace, really, that this is the most industrialised country on earth, um, filled with millions of people who have fought, who have put their blood, sweat and tears into fighting for democracy and fighting for some share of the ridiculous riches that are created by the rich in that country. And yet we have millions of people working two jobs and sleeping in their cars. We have millions of people going without health care because they can't afford the premiums. Mm. So, I mean, this there have been Bernie Sanders before, like There's not an exact iteration of this, but people have attempted yeah. this pathway before. People have tried to fight within Congress for, you know, just that one bill that might make people's lives better. And yeah, a few of those over the years have gotten through. Mm. Um, but really, that's not what we're fighting for. Um, and of course, we pass comment on those things. Of course, we're not ambivalent. Mm. Yes, people should have health care. Yeah. Yes, that would be better than them not having it. Um, but we want to fight for a society where people are not denied um, these basics that exist in abundance for the rich in the first place mm. um, because of a system that's all based around the profits of the rich and protecting those. Um, and I think if you lose sight of those, that, that fight, um, then it's kind of like what's, what's even the point of identifying as a socialist and, and fighting for that better society? Mm. It's not actually about you know, hoping that every 50 years or so we might get one tiny little measure handed to us by some vaguely more progressive politician. It's about getting rid of the whole structural edifice that um, means that we have to accept crumbs in the first place. Especially when there's all this sort of crisis as well right now where it doesn't, it seems highly unlikely. I mean, the climate crisis even put that aside, but like the economic crisis that there's no end to, you know, the migrant crisis that people talk about. The, well, it's a crisis that human beings are forced to move around the world in their millions in bigger numbers than ever before, all of that kind of stuff. That now I feel like when when you're just fighting as um, for reforms as your end goal, it does affect your methodology as well. And that's what you said. You made it funny, you know, it's true what they say in the right of the Labor Party, but that's because if – Fighting for reforms and saying, but if we could just get this one thing that's slightly better, is your end game and you think that is my way that I want to change the world, then you do just um, go into it thinking, well, what can we trade off for this? What can we forget about for that? Well, if we lock up refugees over there, we might get this other thing over here. What can we beg Jackie Lambie for? You know, Mm -hmm. like what can we win 50% plus one of the electorate with and what can't we because it seems too radical so we'll drop that thing Mm. and we'll maybe come back to it later. You know, so all of that is that pressure of kind of a reformist way of trying to change the world that means that inevitably you're not going to, you know, you're going to end up basically reinforcing all of the shit things about capitalism, Mm. which is why we say when revolutionaries fight for reforms like, Sometimes we're actually better at it because we want to keep going past that and we don't compromise and we have principles and we, you know, Mm. have a methodology that's about mass struggle and engagement and all of that. Our comrades across the world. I 
had a question about compromise too, because this one, it's a topic that I keep coming back to on the podcast with every guest, you know, like how much do you compromise? You can, you can, or ideological purity, you can either, you know, um, stick to your values 100% and maybe not get anything done, or you can compromise a little bit and get something done, which is some people would argue. I mean, even within revolutionary leftist circles, I'm sure you compromise, you reach some kind of consensus and you, you know, and not everyone and not everyone agrees on things and not every single member of the working class is going to want exactly the same thing either, right? Like compromise and stuff. That's all part of the democratic um, system too, right? How, how do you guys think about compromise and how you approach that in, in movement making? Well, that's the, that little thing you tacked on the end about in movement making mm-hmm. is, is probably the important, um, I don't know what you call that, suffix i don't know what you call it. that thing at the end was important because <laughs> because it it points out that compromise is a kind of tactical thing sometimes you know like okay we we might want to achieve x but you know we need to work with other forces to make things happen and so therefore we don't you know otherwise otherwise every single issue of this podcast and every single issue of our paper and everything we do all the time would just start with all power to the soviets right you know what i mean it, we don't we have to say okay that's sort of the end goal but where are we now and how do we take a little step in that direction, which might actually mean going that way for a time and working with this other group? Like, these are just tactical questions. This idea that revolutionaries are just these kind of rigid, inflexible, you know, monolithic kind of, you know, it, it's it's a weird caricature that probably has its roots in Stalin, you know. Um, actually, what we're trying to do, because of that stuff that we've been talking about, about the emphasis and the importance that we place on trying to involve as many people as possible in struggling for their own freedom, in whatever context that is, um, that's our kind of guiding, you know, that's our North star, you know, that's, that's where we're sort of, that's how we orient. And yeah, I mean, Mm. I guess that that's not an exactly an answer to your question, but Mm. I guess it's, it's the thing that we're trying if when in those situations we're trying, where we're trying to build a particular campaign or whatever, then of course we have flexibility. I think, yeah, like I reckon, um, you know, you make compromises tactically in movements about what demand you might put forward at a given time or also just, the tactics of the day, like exactly how you'll approach building the movement, where to have a demo, how often to have them, whatever, stuff like that. Um, but I think it's actually one of the trademarks of revolutionary socialist politics that we don't compromise on the fact that we're for dismantling capitalism and replacing it with socialism. And it's not a virtue to compromise on that goal mm. um, because compromise talked about politically in terms of principles and opportunities amongst mainstream politicians is all about opportunism, pragmatism and playing politics as a game. And it's about these individual political actors getting ahead as political operators by giving a little here, taking a little there, whatever else. Um, But politics isn't a game for revolutionary socialists. It's a a vision for a different kind of society. Mm. Um, So in terms of our party, making compromises that actually sacrifice our principles or sacrifice what we're for in terms of um, building a anti-capitalist, like a socialist society, um, we would never do that because that mm. just defies the whole point. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's something to be proud of. I think it's something <laughs> most ordinary people find really revolting mm. about mainstream politics mm is how there's no principles. It's yeah. just anything goes. Once you get into the scrum, once you get into the game, you can give up anything for anything. Um, yeah, I think that's sickening. Yeah. And I think that that goes alongside of level of determination, I think, that revolutionaries have in some ways that reformists don't necessarily need to have because you can work out some clever way to compromise and 
do deals and whatever and you can still win um but you don't have to sort of you don't have a project of something much bigger which is what we do and in that way our determination to build that project for socialism can make us really excellent campaigners mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who grit their teeth and say actually do you know what this would never have happened if it wasn't for those bloody revolutionary socialist alternative people mm-hmm. and they're some of the best campaigners and jesus when other people have given up or they can't be bothered or they're burnt out or whatever, we're always still there. You know, like it's a question <laughs> I get a lot. It's like, oh, how do you keep being an activist? How do you keep going? It's like, because I'm not about, I'm, I'm about changing the entire world. Yeah. And people go, oh, well. And also, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to fucking try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to spend my life trying to do that. The, the long view I find very admirable. I've learned more about that. Like, you know, it's not, if, yeah, if you uh, limit your political ambitions to a three year election cycle, you're going to be disappointed and fucked over and you're going to lose sight of what you're about. But if you take a much longer, broader view about what you're working for, I think it's, it's, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's where a lot of that uh, dedication comes from. No. Can I, on that one too, it's, even more than just the two or three year election cycle, it's about, uh, you know, if your focus is on winning as many votes as possible, mm. then your starting point, you, have, you look at society as it is, mm. you know, how, what do people think right now? Right. What do I have to say or do to get them to vote for me? Yes. That's why they have no principles. Right. You know, for us, precisely because we have that long view and our view is the complete and utter overthrow of all existing conditions and the liberation of humanity, we're acutely aware that that starting point for most of history, puts us in a very small minority. Hmm. We're not a scared. We're not scared of being in a minority. We know we're not going to win an election tomorrow because we know that most people out there don't think, yeah, those socialists are right. We should overthrow society. You know, because we're because we understand we're in a minority, and because we have that long view, our goal then is not what do we have to say to get people to vote for us. Our view is how can we change people's opinions? How can we change people on mass and get them to understand that they that that, that their own liberation is you know, is bound up in their own activity to free themselves. And, you know, like that's that's an immediately different project, a long-term project in some ways, but also can move very quickly. Mm. You know, that's, that's another thing that you learn from not just history, but from the last 12 months, you know. Yeah, France right now, yeah. for example. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was an electoral project. There was Victorian socialists, and I'm sure there's a whole history about how that came about and stuff, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on like why – why dip your toe into that world then in in this in the state election and the federal election as well with Victorian socialists, and whether there there is a, a problem at all when you know at the heart of say social alternative is this idea that the parliament and the courts uh, are illegitimate and we want to overthrow those those institutions. So why why should I vote for you to put you into this institution that you don't think is mm-hmm. is legit? People vote for the Brexit party, didn't they, to go into the <laughs> European Union? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, true. That's partly similar actually in some ways because we. Wanna, we think that Parliament is illegitimate, but we would quite like there to be a few people in there telling, saying this place is fucking illegitimate mm-hmm. and it's trash and you're all talking about exactly the wrong issues and you're all scum and you're all bought <laughs> off by lobbyists <laughs> and I'm not doing deals with anyone and I'm just here to keep talking about what we actually need in society. Mm. And that's sort of what we thought we could do mm. with the Victorian socialists with the opportunity in, in the Victorian Parliament specifically. And then... The other thing that you get with it is the fact that people think that that's legitimate. You know, that's the realm of politics, like we were saying earlier, your 30 seconds when you vote. So if we can be around that and and be talking to people about socialism, then that's, that. you know, it's part of the engagement in politics in Australia. It's a platform that people think is legitimate and we can go in there and we can be radical about it, which yeah. we were. 
Mm. Yeah, like just not abstaining from any forum. Um, I think it was Lennon said you should use every dung heap to (laughs) (laughs) advocate your politics. As I say, he was quite short, (laughs) so he probably needed it. Um, But, yeah, it's also a pretty good uh, way of describing parliament in some ways, yeah. Um, But, you know, lots of, like, um, rabble-rousers have gotten into parliaments over the years and um, made an impact through using that to um, organise. Yeah, Irish Republicans, like, going, I don't recognise Westminster as the... Government of anywhere in, on the island of Ireland, mm. not yeah. going to go there. Mm. But yeah, socialists in Australia as well. Back when the Labor Party had a few more like actual rebels in it, you know, genuine socialists got in, and and the Communist Party. One communist, um, Fred yeah. Patterson yeah. in nineteen fifty Queensland. Mm. Yeah, but can I ask, like, why did you vote for Victorian socialists? Like, you must have known, like, they didn't really, um, you know, wasn't going to storm the stage and become the majority. Party in Victorian Parliament, so not storm stage. I mean, you know, the the very the realistic goal of of getting um, a socialist member into yeah, into, sure. into Parliament House was was real. Yeah, I genuinely read the manifesto and the policy mm. outline. I was like, yeah, yeah, this is this, yeah, mm. this, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is great. I mean, again, that's a good example. Like, you know, so in the in the manifesto, you're talking about huge amounts of public in, yeah. investment in public housing, right? Which which we all want, which mm. would be good for people. That would be a good thing. But you don't you need the machinations or the levers of the state and the power of the state to create something like that to build public housing for people? Can't can't we use can't we utilize or harness the power of the state to feed people and house people and give them free medical care and transform their lives? Yeah, I know we don't, <laughs> but because <laughs> <laughs> we did. Um, yeah, I mean we it's the practice of socialists daily whether putting forward the Victorian Socialist Manifesto or just um, running campaigns in the streets to put demands on the state um, and always to demand um, that things be under state control rather than private control because that gives us at least theoretically some modicum of control over over that service or whatever. Um, but I think that that's about um, fighting for more under capitalism. It's not about accepting the parameters mm. Of capitalism and the capitalist state, or that we'll ever be able to get enough within that system that actually is, um, you know, amounts to a just and equal world. Um, and you can see that in that, like, so many things that were fought for in the 70s in this country and fought for, right? Mm. Not just like uh, dreamt up by some policy wonk in parliament, um, but fought for on the streets against the will, mostly, of the people sitting in power. Um, so many of those things have been rolled back. Free education mm. is such a key one, I reckon, because mm. it's been a policy that, like, you know, the Greens stand for now, Bernie Sanders stands for, Corbyn stood for, Jesse Jackson, another Democratic, um, like, left Democratic um, campaigner in the 80s, campaigned for in the US. It's something so tangible and obvious to people. It would mm. be so easy for society to deliver. We had it for a few short years here. Um, and then the Labor Party, when they're on the neoliberal juggernaut, just rolled it back, got rid of it. Mm. And it's just consensus now in amongst the mainstream parties in parliament anyway that this is unacceptable, we'll never have this again. Yeah. So things don't just progress forward in some linear way no. where we wrest things from the state and then they're ours. Mm. Um, overwhelmingly, the state is in the hands of the capitalist class and it's only for brief periods that we're actually able to, you know, win some things off it. Um, mm. And it's sort of like engaging in that. It's, it would be the same saying, 
well, isn't fighting for a pay rise accepting the premise of exploitation at mm. work? Like you're saying, capitalism is okay because I will accept this wage and I'm going to ask for more of a wage. Therefore, you're, then you're saying, well, being exploited is fine, right? Because yeah. you're negotiating with, you know, or you're fighting collectively as part of a union to get better wages or conditions. doesn't mean you accept the entire premise of capitalism and exploitation and the whole conditions of, that everyone has at work in this system. But of course you want a better one and mm. you want more from the state and you want more from your boss and people should demand that all the time. The way of the revolution has been in March. Um, all right, well, I'll, I'll... One last doozy. I'll, I'll give you two more doozies. Two. Like. Great. Okay, so, you know, talking to you guys, uh, hearing from um, uh, revolutionary socialists, point to examples like in Chile at the moment or these, pla- these places where people are literally on the streets, right, and shit's going down. And those are societies where people are getting fucked over and I think that's fantastic and that's exciting and great and I understand why you can see some, uh, you know, a lot of, you can be inspired by that and encourage that, support that and stand in solidarity with that. Is it different to you in the Australian context? Because I guess, I guess again, maybe it's a strategic question, but I look at, you know, people riding on the streets and that kind of thing and I get worried. I think the, the chaos associated with that, the disruption to our society and where Australia was at at the moment, um, it makes me scared. Maybe I'm just scared they're going to smash my stuff. But um, I, I guess, yeah, I'm just interested in your in whether that's whether you think about that not being a particularly appealing um, image for a, a political transformation of Australian society to a lot of Australian people. People who I, you know, in my world who I think would be generally sympathetic to, to, um, you know, fucking over capitalism or um, making our society more just and better in a range of different ways who aren't particularly interested in um, in smashing stuff in the streets. <laughs> I think... Um, Is that a rad lib question? Am I, am <laughs> I, mean, I, I a shill? I, I think revolutions are um, exciting and gorgeous and... Over and over again, people who are, are some of the most marginalised in society feel extreme like liberation when they're on the streets with millions of other people. Um, and, you know, you have people who, like children, leading, <laughs> spe- like giving speeches on top of the shoulders of like adults cheering for them, like children learning how to make political speeches about their society, um, people chanting, people breaking the norms of um, what for most people is actually a stultifying normalcy. Like for most people, society, um, okay, there may be some re- reliability in it, in the routine, but it's stultifying and oppressive um, because day in, day out, we have to go to work to make wages um, to survive and then to, you know, live pretty isolated lives most of the time. Many people suffer all sorts of social oppressions on top of that. So, yeah, I think people experience um, euphoria so often during revolutions. I think also the fear that can be felt in sort of anticipation of of a like a scenario where the state is clashing with the people um, is overcome in practice just by the practicality of it. Mm. Um, like you can see with Hong Kong. I don't think that the people of Hong Kong like eight months ago before this um, massive uprising started would have said that they would just necessarily side with a bunch of um, teenagers who go out onto the streets to fight with the cops 
um, against the cops. Like the cops in Hong Kong were the most respected police force in all of Asia, apparently. I don't know how that stat is actually gleaned, but <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, they were not seen as... Uh, very low bar. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, that's similar to Australia, right? Like people just accept the violence of the state often, mm. um, even though it's pretty hideous um, the way the police treat Aboriginal people, literally murder them in custody and so on, but they have the legitimacy of the state. So that's not seen as unfettered violence and rioting and criminality. That's just seen as order and function and whatever. Um, But, yeah, when the police actually go head-to-head against a population fighting for basic democratic rights that everyone else supports, um, people know which side they side with and which side stands for peace even if they're engaging in tactics which are about um, demobilising the violence um, Mm. and, you know, fighting the cops on the streets. I think it's legitimate to be a bit scared of, like, being tear gassed and pepper sprayed and, Mm. you know, shot at and all of the stuff Mm. that we've seen in Chile, like the police deliberately shooting people in the eye. Mm. There's hundreds of people who've lost their eyes in Chile. Mm. So they're not dead, but they are blind for life and it's like the strategy of the cops and all of that. Um, but on the other side, yeah, the that kind of euphoria that Sarah's talking about. I mean, we've I haven't been in a revolutionary situation, but I've been at some pretty huge demos. I've been at some pretty exciting blockades and stuff like that. And you just get a tiny sense of it, and you're like, oh my god, like things could be different. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people. I mean, there might be people who actually sort of on a theoretical level can go, oh, yeah, capitalism is bad. But actually they're very comfortable <laughs> with where they are and what they have and their job and their life and whatever. And so sometimes they can be pe- – yeah, you know, that that is actually a thing that they don't really want to mm. disrupt the system. Mm. And so therefore you find other ex- sort of reasons, rationale for like, oh, well, you know, isn't it violent or isn't it risky or won't people get hurt and maybe we'll, we'll do something different? Or maybe there is a way to make capitalism better in the end. Mm. So I think that sometimes some of that stuff can be covering over other things, potentially. I'm not saying you feel like mm. that, but no. I, I think that there can be part I'm of it. I'm cool, guys. Like, I'm cool. Yeah. It's like, I know capitalism is shit for heaps of people and that's sort of morally disturbing, but I can just sort of keep looking in this other direction and carry on. Yeah. yeah. I, think, you know. I think one of the hallmarks of the mass upheavals, the mass uprisings we're seeing around the world in the last year or so uh, has been that sense that enough is enough. Mm. And so, you know, like the the slogan, because you mentioned Chile, you know, one of the key slogans that came out of that was that, because remember the, the, catalyst, the immediate catalyst was that they tried to increase the fares on the subway by 30 pesos. Mm. And one of the slogans that came up very quickly with the mass protest was, it's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. Mm. And that was a, that was a mass sentiment of you know this is one straw too many mm. after 30 years of neoliberalism 30 Wasn't it, years they, of, they took away everything they took away our fear mm. yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. That was and that you know every yeah. revolutionary upheaval or even a mass upheaval that's not even approaching revolutionary scale yet you see the same dynamic right people just saying we're not going to take it yeah. anymore we're so it's not it. people at some point going i know what let's all go out together and fight <laughs> yeah. the cops and <laughs> see what tear gas tastes like right. it's like literally just like well I'm, this is fucked. Uh, mm. They've gone too far. Oh, other people are coming out too. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, not just other people, like tens of thousands of people. <laughs> oh, and young people particularly are really angry and they're up the front and they're building barricades. Okay, this is happening. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. And it should be happening. And so it's not really, it, you know, in Australia, it does seem a bit hard to imagine because it needs, it, you know, people are pushed into it by various types of crises that capitalism mm. throws up and they will be thrown up in Australia. And we see, you know, a, a glimpse of that again with the bushfire crisis mm-hmm. that people were sp- sort of spontaneously mm. just by one Facebook Uni Students for Climate Justice yeah you know, event, and there were tens of thousands of people. Nobody expected that, but people were fucking angry. Yeah, mm. Like, this is not acceptable, half a billion dead animals and the Prime Minister on holiday and people's lives ruined and the news is now just going to look in the other direction. Mm. Like, that's how it happens. It's mm. not because people think, you know, oh, next Saturday might be a nice day for a protest. <laughs> yeah, I got the Facebook invite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, the last doozy, this may be too much of a doozy, mm-hmm. but... Um, when I talk to my friends who are vaguely interested, who are, you know, more open to socialist ideas and are interested in my interest in it, the inevitable question is, how will it work? How will it work, Tom? What is mm. the blueprint for this new mm. society that will work? And um, and I don't expect you to answer that now. I'm interested in how you respond to that, particularly when, you know, maybe people's only real-life examples that they can point to um, are, are examples that, of course, right-wing and capitalists will use all the time of, you know, society's not going so great. Mm. So how do you approach the how will it work slash what about Venezuela question? <laughs> my starting point... Like Tom Elliott flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my starting point is to say, is usually to say, look, you know, forget everything you think you know about socialism. All these countries that call themselves socialists, like there's a bunch of other countries that call themselves democratic. They call, yeah. they call themselves whatever the fuck they want. Um, you know, you have to look at how that society actually functions. All those countries that call themselves socialists, none of them were. You know, the closest we ever really got was, you know, a few years after the, you know, a few years following the Russian Revolution before Stalin. You know, so there's this, and even that was like in a shit situation, you know, so it's hardly a model of what we think socialism should look like. So that's, you know, a disappointing answer because it's like, no, I don't have the ready, here's the book and the photos of, you know, what it looks like and how yes. it will operate. But what we've learned through, you know, 200 years of, um, of, of capitalism and of working class struggle and of those moments where we have almost done it, what we have learnt is that when the working class moves in a very conscious and very deliberate and a mass way, cons- consistently in country after country, year after year, wherever this happens, similar things unfold, similar scenarios unfold. The working class starts to think, well, how are we going to fight for our rights? How, what power do we have to pursue our, you know, to, to win our freedom and pursue our rights? The only power we have is our ability to control the work we do. So we're going to use that as our main weapon. We're going to start using that uh, to try to put the squeeze on the capitalists to put, you know, to try it. And how do we do that? Well, we can only really do it democratically and collectively. So we're going to have to form some kind of bodies to organize this thing. You know, it's it's a collective process because I can't just go into my workplace and, and run it myself. You know, it's so all of these things that are part of the experience of being a worker from the moment you you know from the moment you join a union and you have a strike and there's a bunch of you involved and you have to convince your workmates to come with you and you know, the very experience of doing that points in the direction mm. of what we think socialism could look like that we would have you know a society where all of the work that is done in society is democratically controlled and democratically organized not so that some fucker at the top can make a profit out of it and and screw the rest of us and destroy the planet but so that we can all decide collectively what do we need as a society mm. how are we going to do it yeah yeah and one of the big decisions there is what do you produce and what don't you need to produce? Like, there's so there's huge sections. The iPhone of- 11, which has <laughs> slow motion selfies, which is what we all need now. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> well, like we can have, uh, you know, we, yeah, can, we have can have cool stuff. We, we just have really don't have cool to stuff. Have it made by slaves. That's yeah. right. And then yeah. we don't have to have it like 
you know, made to expire or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine yeah. how much better that iPhone would be if it was made by workers who democratically controlled that process. Yeah. And yeah. Were, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And everyone, and everyone could just have one. Mm. And there's heaps of stuff that you wouldn't need because mm. you would be doing things completely differently. And there's so much waste. I, you know, people are more conscious of that now with the environmental crisis stuff, but just generally in capitalism, so much of people's time and energy is wasted. Mm. It's just such a massive tragedy. Like it's a tragedy on the scale of human history, I think, Mm. that so many people spend their lives in capitalism doing utter bullshit things that they know are utter bullshit, Mm. making crap that's going to fall apart, Mm. working on something that's completely pointless, going to meetings with people, you know, like spending hours and days and designing stuff that's, you know, Mm. that they know is just, supposed to be a better profit margin or like Mm. working in supermarkets where you're taking stuff off the shelf and putting it in a dumpster because it's the wrong shape you know like at every system every layer of the system of production of capitalism people can see right now how crap it is Mm -hmm. and they just have to do it and it's depressing and awful Mm. and so like there's a million ways that you could run socialism where people already know what to do to make it better. Okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to grow shit like this anymore. We're not going to have to have these kind of meetings anymore. We're not going to have to have stupid marketing strategies for everything. Scrap all of that. Like, yeah. We're not going to teach kids in schools all this bullshit about fucking white history of Australia like, mm. or, or how to you know, tie up a tie to the correct length or whatever crap that it is. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, like we'd have a society organised around human need mm. and uh, we'd have to research and do a lot of work to make, re-equip the world to be environmentally um, sustainable, for example, and to try and mitigate against the um, hothouse earth temperatures that we're going to be subjected to, even mm. under socialism. Um, but that'll be meaningful, hey? Like people actually, there's a purpose to their work that's not just fulfilling these tasks that you don't know what the logic behind them is or if you do you know that logic is about the profit motive kind of thing um so yeah i think a society organized around human yeah Yeah. people only have to work a few hours a day you know you can pick what you value Mm. and you can actually know what that is and there's all this research about even just our brains under capitalism are Mm. not working properly (laughs) our bodies are definitely not Mm. working to their potential because they're full of crap because you don't have really any choice about Mm. All of the processing and the chemicals and, you know, the way that your brain is trained in such a limited way. And there's just whole industries that are accepted as sort of relevant today that you could obliterate. So Mm. like military production, advertising, lawyers, all lawyers, (laughs) Um, absolutely unnecessary. Like, um, yeah, but I think, so socialism would be very cool. Um, and, <laughs> That's what we've got to. Uh, That's a good point, yeah. everyone. Yeah. But I think it's true. Um, the thing about it, it's actually a good answer. The look at a revolution, and there you find the glimpses of it, um, because it goes to your other question of like, which I think comes from the way uh, revolutions are often projected in mainstream media which is that they're these scary, chaotic, disorderly, yeah, mob kind of um, crazed riots when, in fact, they're often orderly, logical people actually coming up as they fight to dismantle the current system. Mm. Um, In order to do that, they're having to work out how to run their 
occupations of squares democratically, how to re-equip workplaces and schools and all of these services in society when the bosses have just like jumped ship and fled the city because there's a revolution going on. So people start to imagine all of these things and um, build them in the course of a revolution. And we don't get the full picture, but you get these glimpses in just a few short weeks, people start building a different Mm. society. Mm. George Orwell said when he went to Barcelona that he saw all of this, people organising themselves in defence militias, organising to run the schools under popular control. Um, All of the, like in Barcelona during the Revolution 36, 90% of bosses left Barcelona. So it's like, (laughs) it's being run by... And then they call the Olympics. Mm. Yeah. Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Orwell said, I don't know what's exactly going on here, but I recognised it immediately as a state of affairs worth fighting for. Yeah. And I think that's right. Nice. Thanks so much, guys. I mm, really appreciate thanks, Tom. it. Thank you. Tom Ballard. <laughs> what a delight to have you on Red Flag Radio. It was a joy. Thanks for having me. And um, do you want to promote anything? <laughs> In the capitalist system? Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> yes. got some gigs coming <laughs> yeah. up. I do have tickets on sale, yes. If, if comrades are in Adelaide, they might like my show yeah. Enough, which is about uh, my transition to socialism. Mm. Um, and I have a show you called... might need to rewrite it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Can't be bothered. I've got to write the new show, Grand Eloquent, which is going to Brisbane and Melbourne. And if people want to check out my podcast, it's called Like I'm a Six-Year-Old. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah and Liam. Pleasure. And you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win.